Well, good morning, Gateway. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Alex York. I'm the associate pastor. Pastor Ed's out of town this weekend on some much-deserved R&R, and I'm really excited that this morning we've got Michael Haynes with us. Mike is the youth pastor at Christian Fellowship. I've known his dad for a lot of years, and I've had a chance to meet some others in his family, uh, but we were just talking, uh, the last time that I saw him was quite some time ago at uh, an ordination service where he and a good friend were getting ordained. A little bit of trivia here. I don't know if you, you should ask your wife about this. I think she was in a production of Guys and Dolls when she was a middle schooler, and I was there. Really? I don't remember her performance, so just tell her it was awesome. Okay. Uh, but um, I, I don't even remember my own daughter's performance that <laughs> one, but... Apparently, they were in the same uh, like theater group that year. Well, so. what a small world. And I'll Dave, let her know. David was in that, too. They I talk about it all the time. I don't know if he tap dances <laughs> anymore. but um. Well, not as much. So, Mike, tell us uh, who you are, about your family, your ministry. Give us a two or three minute synopsis. Yeah. So so basically, I'm a, I'm a youth pastor at Christian Fellowship Church in Ashburn. Um, I am married, been married for seven and a half years. And we have three beautiful children. Aiden is going on seven in January. Lily is four and Kyra is two. Wow. And so we are just exiting that really, really hard stage of parenting where they're all super young. Uh, and so we've been having a lot of fun over the course of the pandemic, just enjoying uh, being together a whole lot more. Um, but yeah, I, I've got, you know, my dad is is a pastor, has been for, for years and years and years, um, and he's now retired. And then my grandfather, who we were talking about before we, we hit record, right? He's pastor as well, was a pastor for, you know, Ever. half a century, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? So, uh, and so, yeah, just the ministry thing is, it, it's, I wanted to be in the NBA, uh, but in, uh, viewers might not be able to tell this, but I am not a tall person. Uh, <laughs> and so the NBA didn't work out super well, but uh, happy to be doing ministry and, and working with students. Cool. Yeah. How, how did you, I mean, maybe it's self-evident, but like, how did you come to Christ and how did you decide to go into ministry? Yeah. And that's actually a great question because it's, 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 yeah, it seems self-evident, but the, the reality is it was, it, for me, it felt like a process. Mm. Um, I know some, for some people, they can remember a moment, right? They were at camp or they were, you know, doing, and they'd remember the moment. And for me, because I was born in a church pew, right? Like I, I for me, it felt a lot more gradual to where it was almost like I always knew Jesus, but there came a point early in high school, um, actually right after moving here, my family moved here from Boston and uh, we, I wound up attending, you know, started attending Stonebridge where Abby and Joe, right? So we've got that in common as well as your kids and I went to the same high school. Um, and so when we first got here in early, early uh, high school, I just started, I started having friends who love Jesus. And I had always had friends who were religious and I'd always had friends who knew stuff about the Bible or they were pretty good kids or whatever, but there was something different about these friends that I encountered. There was something about them where they would lift their hands in worship when we were worshiping. And as a, as a 13, 14 year old kid, I'd never experienced that before. What are you guys doing? That's what adults do. <laughs> That's what the grownups do. We don't do that. We're kids. And, and so there was something, it became clear to me that there was something in, in this, there's this relational piece with Jesus that I was missing. Um, and so there, it was just about a year long period of me falling in love, not just with the, the religion and the Bible knowledge, but falling in love with Jesus himself. Um, and that kind of led me down the path of, because that happened in the context of youth group, it, it very naturally led me down the path of, of wanting to pursue youth ministry as a profession. I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with doing for others what my youth group did for me. And, and so that's what I'm, I'm on a pursuit to do. Cool.
So uh, most of your time growing up then was either in Boston or in Northern Virginia. Yep. Two very different places. Um, we started a conversation as a church a couple of weeks ago about uh, racial injustice. And that's a uh, surprise. That's why I have yeah, you here yeah. uh, talking. Um, I, I've heard you speak on this subject uh, before, and, and I thought your perspective would be really helpful. So what, what was it like for you, either place, both places, growing up, uh, what was your exposure to racism or prejudice or just life in general? How did, how did you become aware that there are some people that didn't value you in the same way? Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, actually my experience has been, had been pretty mild, right? Uh, for the most part, I have a couple of experiences that I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but for the most part, just kind of to late set the groundwork, particularly here in Northern Virginia, which is where I became a teenager and in a, in kind of a young man. And that's when as a black person, I would start to really experience that racism is when I become a, a teenager and a grown because then I'm perceived as a threat, whereas before I was just perceived as a kid and you kind of get a pass when you're a kid. Um, I didn't experience a whole lot here, not a whole lot. Um, a couple of things that, that I'll highlight. Um, when I was 18, I was home from college. I went to Liberty University to study youth ministry and I was home from college. Uh, I had a buddy of mine who was my roommate and he lived, he just happened to live in Manassas. And so, because I was from Ashburn, he's from Manassas on breaks, we'd hang out. Um, and so I, I was on my way to his house and uh, in the evening and I was driving my mom's car. My mom drives, uh, has, uh, she's so, parents have always had nice cars and, um, and that's part of my story, right? I don't come from white privilege, but I do come from some privilege, right? And growing up in Ashburn and stuff, but there's some privilege there. Um, and so that's a part of my story. And, uh, and so I was driving my mom's Jaguar. And I was, I kind of got lost. This was before the, if you can believe it, I actually am old enough to remember what it was like to drive before Google Maps on your phone, right? Like I, I have a little, a year of experience with that before I got an iPhone. Um, and so, uh, and so I was driving and I got lost and, and, um, and, and the, the, I got pulled over by a police officer while I was in kind of a back area. And, uh, you know, she pulled me over and, and came over to the car and licensed the registration. I'm like, sure. And, and uh, her line of questioning proceeded to basically kind of ask me, like, are you a drug dealer? You know, you're young man, you know, black, you got a I nice guess. car, kind of back here in this area. Are you a drug dealer? Like, I'm, I'm not. Thank you so much for asking. You know, like, I'm actually not. You know, I, I got a Bible in my backpack and we can read together, you know? And, and, um, and so, you know, that was just an instance where I definitely felt like there was racial profiling there. Um, there was some racism there on, on that, on her part. You know, I know what it's like to be in a store and have the store clerk, the owner, the manager, whoever it is, kind of follow me around the store with their eyes or physically because, it looks like I look like the kind of person who would steal something to them. Um, and, and I don't, stealing's not part of my, it's just not, it's never been part of, when I was six, I stole a, a, a cookie accidentally from CVS uh, and I just happened to put it in my pocket and forgot about it because I was six. And when we got home, I took the cookie out and proceeded to immediately burst into tears uh, and tell my dad and we went back and I apologized and we paid for the cookie and it was fine, right? But stealing's just not part of my DNA, but, um, but I, I look like a threat. Um, and that's just part of being black in America sometimes is that you're perceived as a threat until you prove that you're not. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's happened in stores before. You know, same thing every, every once in a while. It doesn't happen that often, right? It's not every day, but every once in a while, you know, I'll be walking down the street and I'll, I'll pass, you know, a, a white woman or what have, what have you and she'll, no, I'll see, you know, it's it's subtle, but I'll see the, the purse kind of get clutched up a little bit and I just kind of laughed to myself, you know, like, you know, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, but you don't know that. Um, and you don't assume that certainly. 
Um, and then even, even at the last church that I was at, um, that I was working at before I worked at, at the church I'm at now, um, I experienced a little bit of from, from the congregation. Um, there's a, a story where when I was on vacation one time, I was working at the church as a youth pastor and I was on vacation and, and, uh, I, um, my mom braided my hair. And so I got cornrows in my hair and I've, I've never had cornrows. I've always kind of rocked a, a mini fro, like what you see here, but, um, but my hair just happened to be long enough to actually braid it. And so she did. And for the first time in my life, I had braids. Um, and so I began posting, uh, on social media with braids and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and just being in, I was in Punta Cana at an all-inclusive resort. It was, I had my son in my arm, you know, binky in my hand and, uh, you know, a very, very flowery, uh, um, what are they called? Diaper bag. Yeah, I had a flowery diaper bag on because that's the life stage I was in, right? Uh, and so with all of these props and elements around me that portray anything but the thug life, I posted hashtag thug life because I just yeah. happened to be wearing braids, but I also have all these other things going on, right? And and it was one of those things where I, uh, you know, when I came back, there was this big uproar and, and you know, people didn't understand the joke, which that's fine. But um but when I, when I came back, it was one of those things where the pastors essentially told me, like, you can't, you can't do that. I, as a white person, I could make that joke and it's fine. Um, but you can't do that because you actually look like someone who might be a thug. And so for the, for the, the people in our congregation, um, mm -hmm. for them, they're going to now you see you as a thug because you had braids in your hair and because you, right. And so, uh, just things like that, even, even the, you know, some aspects of the pick, you know, I see I wear a pick in my hair, right? And, and the reason for that is really simple. When I was in high school, I noticed that, uh, that girls were always able to accessorize really easily. They had all these ways to accessorize. And I was like, I want to accessorize. And so I started wearing picks that matched my hair color or not my hair color, you know, whatever I was wearing or whatever. Right. And, and, uh, and so I just started wearing picks in my hair and it just became something that I did for fun. And, just kind of became a, a personal brand, a style of mine, right? And you know, I was told you, know, you can't, don't, you can't do that. That's you know, it's kind of part of black culture. Black, you, you're not allowed to do that. Don't do that here. Um, and so, you know, th there are just these these little moments, these little moments of of racism that I've experienced and racial prejudice, and and they're not. They're not, they're not at the level of what happened to George Floyd, right? They're not at the level of what happened to, you know, uh, Freddie Gray or Ahmaud Arbery, right? It's not that level, but I, I think that's the point. Um, I think that's part of the issue is that racism does exist in these small, almost imperceptible moments uh, in, in that it's these tiny seeds of racism that we're experiencing all around us. And what we experience with, with the George Floyd situation and what, what I've experienced in my life it, it all comes from the same root, and that's the problem. Um, it just happens to be that, you know, the police officers involved there had the authority, the power, and they had the, the situation where they could express that racism, and, and it wasn't going to be, you know. And so I think, um, I think that's, that's one of the issues that we have going on right now is that what I've experienced is very mild, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who may listen to this that go, that ain't nothing, and you're probably right, but I, I do still think that it's problematic. Well, and it's... <sighs> It's problematic that those same roots are there in churches, yeah. you know, um, we, we could hope that they wouldn't be, but they really are. Uh, by the way, let me just point out, there will come a time in your life where you probably will not be able to get that pick to stay in your hair. That's good. There, there, you know, when you get to be my age or your dad's age, yeah. there's a reason old guys don't wear those. That's there's, good it doesn't, well, I'm just going to enjoy know. it while I can. Is that our, yeah, Absolutely. Can I, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, so uh, there are lots of conversations going on today under the umbrella maybe of, of race in America. Uh, lots of different, you know, sub-conversations that go along with that. Are there any of those that are um, 
especially significant to you or that that energize you more than others and if so which you know? yeah and it's it's a hard it feels like such a hard question to answer because all of the things are important things um and so you know i i recognize that the conversations around you know confederate statues and flags those that's important those are important conversations we have to reevaluate those things and i get that um i think you know even the systemic racism and the economic gap between black communities and white communities those are important conversations and i'm glad that we're having them um but the one that is that is kind of heaviest on my heart uh, definitely is the one surrounding how do we reevaluate what's going on with the police force and and how do we um, how do we maybe reevaluate that and put it in a, in a way where things happen in a more healthy manner and there's more de-escalation and there's less of the the brutality situations that happen for me that just because it feels more urgent it feels more pressing to me um, as a black man with a black son um, it's just something that worries me and so um, and so I think that that's definitely the area the conversation that's happening that is heaviest on my heart mm. yeah that's my, my wife um pointed this out we my i have a one son yeah. uh who looks like me but with hair and uh and then my son-in-law who doesn't look like me uh he's a person of color and my wife points out that you know we have two sons one of them probably will never ever not even be treated impolitely by the police. And yep. the other one, we, we have to worry for yep. that with the wrong person at the wrong time or under the wrong circumstances. Uh, and I, I think, you know, with your kids, that, that's, that's the terrifying part of right. it. So that makes sense. Yep. Um, so uh, are there opportunities that you see for uh, either individual believers or for churches in the midst of these broader conversations? Like what what can we do as individuals, as, as churches? What's the role? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it is, it's a good question because, you know, there it's, it always, there's always this tension when, when you talk about churches getting involved in political mm. stuff, right? There's always some tension there. And I, and I think there should be, um, I think that those are good questions to ask and to make sure that we're not uh, placing our hope in political reform when our hope should be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I think that's, that's good. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I would I look back on the civil rights movement and I I say, well, thank goodness that the church stepped in, mm -hmm. um, and that's where that was the hotbed of of the civil rights movement. It happened in church; they gathered in church. Churches where where things happen, and I'm thankful. Uh, I would not be able to be married to my wife. I wouldn't be able to have my beautiful mixed children if it weren't for that. And so mm -hmm. I I really appreciate that the church did step in. And so when it comes to what can we do individually um, and as a church, uh, I I would say that there are two issues. That we're really talking about here um, because we are talking about racial prejudice and that's kind of the one-on-one -on -one feelings and the interactions and and so that's racial prejudice and, and there's something we can do about that individually that's not as maybe complex right but we're also talking about racism systemic racism in terms of how things are set up in our country and that's where things start getting more political and that's where things get a little more complicated as well in terms of what can we do um but but here's what i'll say i i think that when it comes to what we can do individually um one of the biggest things that we can do is is to spend some time just reflecting um reflecting and allowing jesus into some spaces in our heart here's how i'll say it i think it's i would challenge i'll challenge all of us to spend some time allowing the Holy Spirit into the places of your heart where racism would exist if racism did exist. And, and, and I'm not saying it does, and it you know, probably doesn't, but if those tiny seeds of racism did exist, there are specific places in your heart where they would exist. 
at the risk of getting in trouble, I'm gonna go ahead and name a few examples. So if, if you were extraordinarily upset, right? You were like really, really upset when Colin Kaepernick was, was started kneeling during football games and the national anthem, I'm not saying racism does exist there. Maybe it doesn't, it probably doesn't, but I would say that if, I would say that our job as believers is to allow the Holy Spirit into those places of our heart where racism would exist if it did exist, not because it does exist, but because if it did, that would be a hotspot. Um, if, if, you know, the Colin Cowboys, one example, if, if we, you know, if when, when the prejudice, the, the, the protests were going on, right, if the protests were going on, um, you were more upset about the destruction of property that was happening than you were about the fact that a black man was murdered by the police, then I think that you should allow the Holy Spirit into those spaces in your heart, not because racism does exist, but because if racism did exist in your heart, that's a spot where it might exist. And so I think that's just what we do as believers is allow the Holy Spirit into those spots. Um, and so I think there, there, there are just examples like that where, um, I'm not saying it does. I'm not saying it does exist. But if it did, that is where it would exist. And I think our job as believers is to allow the Holy Spirit into those spaces, even though we may feel dogmatically certain that there's there's nothing there, right? And so, but I think our job as believers is to allow the Holy Spirit into those spaces so that redemption can happen if it needs to happen. So the reason I say that is because, uh, you know, the individual racist, you know, racial prejudice, it starts with all of us, right? Each of us individually. And, and so I think we need to take care of and allow Jesus to take care of those spaces in our heart. Uh, but another thing is, I just think this, what we're doing right now, um, listening to people who don't look like you, I just think that that is a huge step forward. And that's something that we can all do. Um, and that, that would be really, really helpful. When it comes to the systemic racism side of things, you know, I think not every way that you can get involved is going to be right for everybody. And I recognize that. And I think that there's that's that's great. That's fine. Um, but there are definitely some 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 spaces where you can get involved, right? The voting and you know voting for for people who who you're pretty confident are going to stand up for minority groups and um, vote. You know when you know it comes to the protests, right? Going to peaceful protests and being part of that, letting your voice be heard. Um, the online uh, petitions that are kind of going around and you know doing your research and figuring out which ones of those you think you should sign and be mm -hmm. part of and just letting your voice be heard. There's just we're fortunate to live in a country where your voice can be heard and where your voice counts as an American citizen. And so I think, um, you know, not that our job is to, as believers, is to place our hope in polit you know, politics and political reform. Um, but I do think that in terms of things we can do, right, that the march that you, that Gateway went to, mm -hmm. right, a couple, that, that, that's a great example of that, right? Just, we just, it's not about politics. This is, it's just about people. And loving people well sometimes means getting involved in, in trying to enact positive change in the community. So that, that's, those are some thoughts that I would give on that. It's a great, uh, great response. Um, I guess there are, uh, I'm thinking especially in churches, but obviously in the country right now, I mean, there's a wide range of opinions, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, people on either end that uh, probably don't represent a lot of folks, but then wide range, even in the middle uh, of people that that care about the issue, but they have differing opinions and that sort of thing. Uh, any suggestions for how churches and church members can, you know, have some uncomfortable conversations, discuss things, but protect the unity of the body and, and the witness uh, of the church? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think 
I think having the conversations, that's something that churches are really good at doing, right? Mm-hmm. Because small groups is just such a, an, an integral part of what a lot of us do as churches. Mm-hmm. And so we already have, I mean, again, the, co- the pandemic makes it a little tricky to do the in-person small group thing, but, um, but we already have the, the system set up to have conversations as a church about this. Um, but I do think protecting the mu- unity is tough, right? Because it is such an emotionally charged mm-hmm. issue and, and people can both love Jesus and see it differently, oh, right? True. And that, and I, and I think, I think it's hard for us to feel like that's okay. Um, mm. That it's okay if we do see it a little bit differently because you know we both love Jesus. And so, um, but I will say, you know, uh, even if we do see it a little bit differently, I, I do think that there is um, a lot of benefit to taking the however it is that you see a particular issue, any issue it doesn't have to be racial, you know, stuff. It can be anything, and seeing it through the lens of the gospel because I think that. Uh, our lenses, the way that we see the world around us, our eyes, our lens, it's its fractured because of sin. And I think we would all agree on that. And so, but if there is a right way to see, or at least a, 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 a way, a right lane to go into in order to see things better and see things clearly and see things the way that we were created to see them in Christ. And so, um, and so I think seeing things through the lens of the gospel is going to be really helpful for us as we try to navigate this issue as individuals and as the church. Um, and so, uh, and I think that's going to protect the unity of the body too when we when we're able to kind of put on our go- a gospel lens and, and be able to see things through that lens. So um, so I'll give you a couple of examples just Please. to kind of bring it from up here to down here. So um, an example of a gospel lens that I think is helpful for the church right now, and it's been helpful for me personally, and so that's why I say that, um, is because uh, is, is this idea that the, the gospel reality that reconciliation matters and justice matters in the gospel, both. Both matter. In fact, when you look at the gospel, it's very clear. God had to send Jesus to die on the cross because the justice had to be carried out for our sin, right? Mm -hmm. Justice had to be paid. Wrath had to be poured out. God is a God of justice. And so he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for sin because that penalty had to be paid. God is a God of justice. However, in the same breath, uh, even though he valued justice, he also just as highly valued reconciliation Mm -hmm. in the context of the gospel. And so I think seeing racial stuff um, through the lens of the gospel means that we're going to do the same. We're going to value justice, but we're not going to take our eye off of reconciliation. Because when we just value justice, it's very easy for us um, to, to, to take that over into revenge and to take that, let our anger go too far into the side of justice. And so I think it's really important that we do value the reconciliation. And what that means when we do that, what that means is, is, is we're not going to unfriend and unfollow and cut people out of our life because they post something we didn't like on social media about racism, right? We're not, we're not going to cut them out just because we didn't like something they said. We're not going to unfriend and unfollow and, and draw hard lines in the sand around the issue of racial, you know, how people see the whole racial thing. Um, because, uh, you know, God did not write us off quickly. He was, he's slow to, write us off, right? And so I think seeing other people around us through the lens of the gospel means that we value reconciliation and we are slow to write other people off, that we that we sit with them uh, and be patient because that is how God has acted toward us in the context mm-hmm. of the gospel. I mean, so I think that's going to help the unity thing because it's very easy when we're, when, when we're uh, uh, caught up too much on the justice side, it's very easy for us uh, to get off kilter and to start arguing and, and for the body to be torn apart. Um, so that's one example I would give on is reconciliation and justice. That's kind of a gospel lens I've been using um, as we've talked about uh, racism over the course of the past month or so as a country. Um, a second one that I'll give um, is that is that no one really ever gets away with anything. Um, and that's, that's a gospel reality. And it's something that it's very easy to forget that. Um, but the truth of the matter is, 
whenever you see um, injustice, racial injustice or otherwise here on earth, it's easy to feel like, oh, that person got away with it. And it, and it fills you with this hopelessness and this dread and this sense of, I mean, what are we going to, you know, but the, the reality is, and that's true, there's there's something to that, but, but the reality is no one ever gets away with anything mm -hmm. because God is a just judge and he's super good at his job, like really good <laughs> at it, right? So, yeah. so either justice will be carried out for, for that person's sin and for that person's infraction um, at the end of time and God, God will do the consequences will be paid then. Or if that person has or does in the future place their faith in Jesus, then the consequences and the penalty and the justice was carried out for their sin 2000 years ago on the cross. Mm -hmm. And if, and if an earthly injustice happens here, uh, for instance, none, if none of the police officers in the George Floyd thing were charged with anything, they just got away with it. Right. I, I think for those, but, but at some point now in the future or in the past, they placed their faith in Jesus. Um, I think a lot of us would, it would be easy for us to go, well, that's not fair. They got away. You got away. That's not fair. You know, it's like, oh, Jesus covered. Well, that doesn't count, you know? And, yeah. Oh, hold on. You know, <laughs> does, 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 does the blood count or not? Right. And so I mm. think it's really easy for us to feel like, oh, well, if that's the only justice that was carried out, was poured out on Jesus 2000 years ago, that doesn't count. Um, but if, if we feel that way, then that, I mean, for obvious reasons, we need to do a heart check because if, if it doesn't count for the other person's sin, why should it count for yours, right? Why do wow. you consider it to count for your own sin? And so I think that is also helpful because we can have a sense of peace and hope in the midst of racial injustice and other types of injustices here on earth because we know that nobody ever gets away with anything. And when you feel balanced, when you're balanced internally like that, when you're able to have that internal peace, it's a whole lot easier to take a deep breath and relax and not create massive amounts of disunity just because someone else in the church doesn't agree with you on this particular issue. You're able to maintain that unity because you know that God is in control and he's got it and justice will be carried out. And so you feel a little bit more peace and you're able to, to keep the unity going in that way, even when other people disagree. Hmm. Um, if I can give one more, um, in, in the, 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 train ride to get to our destination with this one is a little bit longer um, than, than the ones that I just, the, the lenses that I just gave. So, so if, you know, stick with me, I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey here, but, but the, in the context of the gospel, right? Um, the, the, the gospel is basically all about how um, our experiential reality um, connects and intersects with, with our eternal identity, right? That's what the gospel is. It's the fact that, that God calls us sons and daughters, perfect, flawless, right? Son, daughter of the King in his sight. But our experiential reality says something very different about who we are. Um, and so as believers, our job is to, uh, is to love other people the way that God has loved us. And so we sit with them and we walk with them and we love them in the midst of their experiential reality while all also at the same time pointing them to re their eternal identity. And that's what it means to live out the gospel. That's what, that's what that intersection means. That's the significance mm -hmm. of it. And so our goal as believers is to do that with other people to, yes, we want them to know what their eternal identity is, but their experiential reality matters, right? And mm -hmm. so we walk with them and we sit with them and we reflect with them and we, and we, and we love them in the midst of that. Um, and so the, the reason that that connects to the race issue is because I know as a black man, I know that, that my 
ultimate identity is not found in my race. I know that you and I, you're white, I'm black, and I know that in the context of eternity, that doesn't really matter that much. Um, because, because in the context of eternity, my most core identity is not as a black man and yours is not as a white man. It is, I am a son of the king and you are a son of the king and that is our most core identity. However, however, my experiential reality and the experiential reality of people around me who, who share my skin tone is that their lives don't see, our lives don't seem to matter as much in America. That's our, because we're black and that's our experiential reality. And so, what I would what I would implore of the church and of believers is if if you're someone who who looks at this and you say oh, you know race doesn't matter that much look all lives matter I understand that in an eternal sense all lives matter I get that I get that I totally get that I totally understand that but the experiential reality for Black people in our country is that our lives don't seem to matter as much and so what I would ask is that if you can see it through the lens of the gospel that you would walk with us and and, and live with us and just just sit with us in the reality of of what we're experiencing here on earth even though we might know and you know and everybody knows that all lives matter we know that the gospel is super clear about that. We know that, but the experience reality is that black lives don't seem to matter. And so when you see movements like that, I think that seeing through the lens of the gospel is to walk with them rather than pushing against it with the eternal reality uh, or the eternal identity piece of, well, yeah, I mean, sure, but all lives matter. No, we know that. We know that. We get that. Um, and so I just think, I think uh, seeing through a gospel lens will allow us to have a little bit more unity and a little bit less miscommunication on that. If we can just ex- ex- accept the fact that we're talking about the intersection of experiential reality and eternal identity, but we have to walk in the experience experience reality here on earth. Yeah. And so those are just, those are a couple of, of, of gospel lenses that, that I've, you know, as I've talked with Jesus about this and the Holy Spirit and, and we're just talking about it and I'm, I'm asking God, Hey, can you help me see this clearly? Cause I'm angry and I'm, you know, it's easy for me to just react out of my human nature and, and I don't want to do that. It's my, not what I, I should do as a follower of Jesus. And so, um, those have been helpful for me yeah. and, and I think I'm hoping that they're helpful, um, for, for anyone who's listening as well. Yeah. Those are great insights. I yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, why don't we close in prayer? And I was going to ask if you would start and I'd love for you to pray for Gateway and then I'll pray for your church. Yeah. That sounds okay. great. Cool. Cool. Father, I thank you so much for who you are first and foremost, because no matter what's going on here, uh, you never change. Nothing ever surprises you. Um, and, and you're working things out for the, for the purpose of redemption. Um, and so I, I thank you for what Gateway is doing. Um, I thank you for the steps that they've taken to, to, to be um, a voice in the community against racial injustice. I thank you for the leadership of the church. And I pray that, that the people um, would continue to grow in their love for you and in their love for one another and in love for, for people outside of this church community. I pray that there would be no uh, no disharmony, no disunity. I pray that there would be a oneness, even as people are, are, are see things differently, even as we disagree, God, I pray that there would be unity in this church. Um, I pray for wisdom as, as the church navigates the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. I pray that there would be, be uh, a feeling of peace, um, even when things don't go according to plan, I pray that there would be um, a, a sense of, of of wisdom and hope um, that that you are working all things together for our good and for your glory, that we will become more like your firstborn son, Jesus. 
God, I, I pray for the next generation. I'm so glad that you created them, God, because this racial, this racial equality thing seems to just come so naturally to them. I thank you for those aspects of Gen Z and Gen Alpha, and, and I pray that you would raise up leaders for the next generation, uh, and, and even for now, who would influence us uh, and, and help us to walk more in, in a way that's in line with your kingdom and in the way that the things that you value. Um, God, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what you're going to do in our country, in our nation, in our world um, through this time, which has been super challenging and super sad. Um, but I know that you're working in the midst of it, and I'm hopeful. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Well, Father, I thank you so much for Mike's willingness to come and share with us from his heart. Thank you for the things that you've placed in his heart and mind and the perspective you've given him. Um, we thank you for his ministry at Christian Fellowship over in Ashburn, and we pray that you would use uh, that church to make an impact for you in that area. Uh, we know that <clears throat> they've just moved into a new building, and uh, we pray that you'd bless their ministry and that many people would come to know you because of their influence and impact. We pray for Mike and his family. Would you guide them, help them to um, really know your presence? Uh, we ask that you would just show favor to them as they follow after you wholeheartedly. And I pray, God, for our state and for our country that as we navigate uh, challenging waters, that you would help us to be better at listening to each other and uh, that you would help us to to love people even though they may disagree with us. And I pray that you would help us to um, just do everything that we can uh, to love and to serve you well and in a way that, that um, makes a statement to those around us that we follow you and that you're the God of love and compassion and mercy and you value each person. You're not a respecter of person. You don't, you don't care what they look like or how much money they have. You love all of us. And Jesus, we're so grateful that you laid down your life for us. Um, and we pray that you would help us to have a, a self-sacrificing love for one another. So thank you, God, for um, your work and all that you have in store for us in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Gateway. My name is Rhiannon, and today I'll be reading from Micah 6, 8. This is the New International Version. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And now I'll be reading from the Amplified Bible. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you except to be just, and to love and diligently practice kindness and compassion, and to walk humbly with your God, setting aside any overblown sense of importance or self-righteousness. Injustice is a hot topic these days, especially here in America, but it's nothing new. Realize that 2,700 years ago, God's people were perpetrating injustice on each other, and God called the prophet Micah to speak to them. So this morning, we're looking at Micah chapter 6. Let me give you a little background, though, to begin with. Micah was a prophet in the Old Testament uh, about 250 years after the high point in Israel's history, when King David had been on the throne. And things have been going downhill ever since. So civil war led to a divided kingdom. There were external threats. Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom, and they were on the doorstep of the southern kingdom where Micah was. And God used Micah to confront God's people with their moral and ethical decline. 
So their leaders had been corrupt, even political, business, religious, they were all self-serving. And the systems they created favored those who had money, resources, influence, power, and connections. They took advantage of the poor and the powerless, the weak and the disadvantaged. And because of this, God was sending judgment their way. Let me also point out that Micah didn't put his hope in political economic reform. He knew that real change would have to come from God's work in the lives of his people. Now, just a few verses before the passage that Rhiannon read, uh, Micah rhetorically asked God's people, hey, do you really think God's going to be impressed by your spirituality if you bring him burnt offerings? If you bring thousands of animals to sacrifice, is that going to impress him? And then in chapter 6, he explains, here's what God really is looking for from you. He has showed you, oh man, what is good. So there's no mystery, humans. It's already known what is good and right and appropriate and pleasing to God. Moses has told you, the prophets have reminded you. He goes on. What does the Lord require of you? What does he require of you? These aren't tips or suggestions. These are requirements. What does he want? What does he expect from his people? To show that they genuinely love him and they want to honor him in the way that they live. So he mentions three things. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. When I was in Haiti a couple of years ago on a mission trip, I got this piece of artwork because these words express the heart cry of people in Haiti and many in other parts of the world, especially in developing countries, but also in America here and now. So I want to dig into what these three phrases, these three ideas mean for us personally, but also for our church and for our country in these days. First of all, act justly. God is holy. He's just. He's fair. He's not impressed by title or power. Nothing escapes his view. He is always just. Whether in this life or in the next, God will execute justice. So as God followers then, there ought to be a resemblance between God and us. Certainly, we ought to act justly. Or as the English Standard Version says, we ought to do justice. So at a basic level, this means we don't act unjustly. We don't take advantage of others just because we can. We don't cheat. We don't impose upon others. We don't stack the deck in our favor or unfairly use our position or influence. We don't take advantage of broken systems just because they make life easier for us. So there have been conversations in recent years about fair trade coffee or buying clothing from factories that use child labor and pay substandard wages. But that's just the lowest level of acting justly. As Christians, we ought to aggressively live out justice wherever and whenever we have opportunity. So we want to act with integrity. And we own our mistakes, not just saying, sorry, but we do everything in our power to make them right. We want to work to advance equity and fairness. We want to encourage it and support it and advocate for it. Almost all of us have influence to some degree or another, whether we're voters or parents, friends and neighbors, coworkers. So we engage in the conversation. We want to be educated about it. We want to find out about injustice in our world and in our community and ways that we can fix it. We invest our time and energy and resources in causes that correct injustice and rebalance the scales. We talk and pray and we become actively involved on the solution side of things. Sad to say, but the culture around us is far ahead of the church on this topic. They're marching, they're calling out injustice, they're demanding change. 
But God tells his people, you do justice. Don't just talk about it or pray about it. Do something to bring justice. For our country, it's probably going to take a while to figure out how to make real progress. And unfortunately, things don't change quickly, as our black brothers and sisters are painfully aware of. But as individuals and families, it's pretty straightforward. And we have a huge green light from God. We have the go-ahead to do justice. For some of you, I really believe that God's positioned you right now for the purpose of making a difference. So don't ease up or back off or slow down. You be encouraged, set the pace. For the rest of us, let's spend some time with God and ask him, how do I need to grow in this area? What are some practical ways that I can do justice and reflect your character to the people around me? Act justly. The second thing Micah says to God's people, if you want to know what really pleases God, is to love mercy. You value it, you pursue it, you make it a priority. So because it's a priority to God and it's at the heart of his character, it becomes a priority for us. The Bible reminds us that God's mercies are new every morning. Mercy goes above and beyond what is earned or deserved. That's what justice is all about. But since God has blessed us richly, then we want to bless the people around us richly. We're diligent and watchful for opportunities to show mercy to others. We don't just acknowledge mercy as a feeling or contemplate it philosophically. We promote it. We invest in it. We teach it to our children. We encourage and challenge each other in the direction of mercy. We call each other out when we're not living up to God's standard of mercy. Of all people, God's people ought to be fantastic at mercy. We ought to be the subject matter experts. Instead, the world knows us because we judge them. So we need to change that perception. We need to model mercy for the world around us. Now, collectively, we do that by investing in mercy ministries, like serving our local food bank or supporting missionaries who are loving people in developing countries, or we have a benevolence fund. And I'll just say, if you find yourself in need right now, we have resources to help you out. This is part of us showing God's mercy. So go to mygateway.life and scroll down to the food and financial relief card and submit a care request. God's resources so we can help out. And we want to put mercy into tangible action. As a church, we're praying about supporting a new mission cause uh, that is focused on um, helping people in developing countries by using their own justice system to protect the most vulnerable people. So we want to support new ministry initiatives uh, as they come up. And we definitely want to commit as a church to having hard conversations where we need to. We need to love people who disagree with us and show them mercy. We want to freely offer grace to protect the unity of the body of Christ. And for all of us, let's pray that God would offer uh, merciful hearts, cultivate merciful hearts in us and in our families. Let's ask him to help us recognize the opportunities around us. So we want to be on the lookout for those in need of mercy, whether it, we're at home or in the office or the store or driving. Let's turn up the volume on mercy and invite and challenge the people around us to do the same thing. The last thing that Micah says God requires us is to walk humbly with your God. Now that's a really rich phrase. It's 
personal and it's relational. It's also active. It speaks of movement, like we're going someplace. There's direction. Um, and it's prescriptive. There's a clearly articulated posture that is required if we're going to walk with God. And that's the posture of humility. If you want a great picture of what it means to be a Christian, this is a great picture of it. Walk humbly with your God. Now, humbly is a critical word for us to understand. And it was important for Micah's hearers and for us too, to understand that when we walk with God, we're not allowed to walk with God casually or occasionally, or when it's convenient for us, or beneficial, or when we're desperate. Humbly means we recognize God's authority in our lives at all times, and we yield to Him. So we choose consistently and deliberately and intentionally to humble ourselves before God, let Him set the, set, the agenda, and we set aside pride and arrogance and independence because we're clear on who the leader is. For those of us that live here in Northern Virginia, and in most places in America, our culture doesn't really value humility. It says, demand excellence, or you deserve everything you can get. Walking humbly acknowledges that we don't deserve anything, and we don't know everything. We have lots to learn about God, about life, about relationships, about race and injustice. So we continuously yield to God. We follow his lead, we check in with him often, and we ask him, hey God, what do you want me to do today for the cause of your kingdom? How can I serve your purposes now? God, help me to be available, ready to jump in. This may mean letting God lead us into some uncomfortable conversations. It may mean us being teachable, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Letting God control the pace and direction of our walk, even if it's unfamiliar territory. If God has called you to speak about racial injustice, don't back off, don't slow down, but let me encourage you, pay attention to the humility side of things and follow God's lead. Don't get ahead of Him. If you're new to the conversation, then humility will serve you well. Being teachable, listening, reflecting, pay attention to God's prompting. All of us who are called as God followers ought to walk humbly as He leads us. If Gateway is your church home, I want to ask you to pray for us, especially in this season. God's blessed us with increasing diversity in our congregation. And as we begin regathering for in-person services in the months ahead, we also need to begin having some potentially uncomfortable conversations about how we get better at doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. Look, God's word to his people is just as relevant to us as it was to them 2,700 years ago. We need to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Father, these are simple words for us to understand, but they are so hard for us to deliver on. I pray that you would work in us as individuals and especially in our church as we sharpen each other, help us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you. We want you to be honored. We want to be witnesses for you to the world around us. We want to be pace setters in this area. We're so grateful for the way that you've blessed us with diversity in the last several years. Help us to be good at loving our brothers and sisters, especially those who don't look like us. And I pray that you would help us to model justice and mercy for those around us. 
for your honor, for the sake of your kingdom, for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.